Hey everyone, and welcome to Resetting the Table, expanding imagination around race, place, and faith for our collective liberation. I'm Trixie Ling. I'm Celine Chuang. And I'm Maria Mulder. We host this podcast from unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territory, otherwise known as Vancouver, Canada. Acknowledging the land is one way we want to commit to decolonization and begin each episode in a good way, expressing solidarity with the Indigenous struggle for rights, reparations, and sovereignty. Today we're talking about friendship, intimacy, and finding kin. In a society where romantic relationships are put on a pedestal, we want to elevate and celebrate friendships in his myriad form. In this conversation, we'll talk about our own friendships, representations of friendships, and the ways that we can subvert relationship hierarchy. Maybe this looks like public ceremonies or commitments or extending and accepting affection and intimacy in more expensive ways. What are the ways that we can make space for generous friendship and chosen family? Let's get into it. So we thought we would start by talking about our own friendships to kind of set the scene on an episode about friendship. So. Yeah. Maria, you had mentioned a funny story <laughs> about our friendship. Maybe we can start with that one. Sure. About our, my, my lack of faith in our friendship. <laughs> um, our yes. bad first date. <laughs> That's basically, yeah, I mean, it wasn't bad. Well. <laughs> Anyways, so basically what happened is you approached me and you had somehow, maybe you can clarify, you had somehow heard of me through the grapevine of church as like an openly queer person who was still around <laughs> even after some 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 queer stuff drama. went down yeah <laughs> um and you basically approached me and you wanted to go out for coffee or a drink to kind of talk and I don't really know what you were hoping to get out of that conversation I think I was just really in a a place of a lot of hurt and anger with like the church and how it had hurt my queer friends and I think I wanted someone to be like angry with me in some way or something like someone to have solidarity in the anger and the hurt but mm -hmm. I think you just weren't in that place at that time like no which I think yeah. you probably had been but just not then oh definitely yes. I had definitely been yeah so yeah we went to Benditas you had some sort of burrito bowl and they oh, forgot no. to put the cheese on oh I forgot about that <laughs> I Terrible. can't remember what I had but yeah, and basically I came out of that conversation really feeling like you were too radical to be a friend with. Like I that we were just in such different places that I was so maybe emotionally removed from the issues that we were talking about because I think a year or two previous I was so deeply kind of in the trauma of the church as a queer person and a few years after that like definitely not over it but I didn't really want to think about it anymore. I was tired. And you had all this energy for justice and I just I couldn't handle it so I, I left that conversation totally thinking that we were gonna kind of be acquaintances maybe have some overlap but that we weren't actually going to form a friendship at all yeah and it's, well it's funny because the way you, you phrased it before was that I was too radical and intense yeah for you. You were um, so which is intense. funny because I was I mean I still am <laughs> radical but I'm less intense and I think you're more radical than you were. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think our friendship surprised us. Like mm -hmm. we started doing some like volunteer work with youth 
mm-hmm. the church and like just started hanging out by proxy because like after that we would hang out and sometimes yeah. talk about how great they were or like just talk debrief about a little bit <laughs> yeah. yeah but debriefing and then also just like like our bi-weekly like every other week mm-hmm. like hang so we got to like you know porch hangs yeah, yeah. hang on the porch smoke cigarettes drink whiskey and cuddle <laughs> yes it was so good um, such a good way to form a friendship <laughs> yeah so and then since then it's been really become like a really deep and intimate friendship that I'm mm-hmm. really grateful for Me um, too. and actually it was on one of those porchings that we talked about a podcast which was like yes. maybe a year ago or more now yeah. so that is one of the places I mean there are a few places where the podcast was birthed like mm-hmm just not gestated that's not the word maria help me conceived <laughs> conceived <laughs> what's the word <laughs> yeah now it is yeah. a baby in the world yeah um but yeah i think the the total surprise of it is mm-hmm. like a fun part of our friendship story yeah people like, always have couple stories and it's like we need to like talk about friendship stories more yeah. you know? yes yes <laughs> yeah totally Trixie, do you want to talk yeah. about how you know us? Or? I was going to say, that makes me think as I'm like trying to think back, um, how do we become friends? I feel, like I, I feel like I can maybe talk more about me and Maria just because we did become friends through this podcast and really mm-hmm. during COVID time. But I don't know. I'm trying to think back, me and you, Celine. I think it's like little moments of connections because we live in the same neighborhood and then we have mutual friends, I think. So I don't really know, but I do think that like, the moments I remember you the most is probably through like eating together. I feel like either eating food or drinking coffee. And I think a lot of my friendship comes through around the table. And I think at least for me on my side, I feel like each time you invited me to your house, whether it's for a pot, um, like potluck or, you know, um, hot pot and, you know, Chinese new year, all these super special moments um, for me, even those eating food that I feel like maybe you eat more often for me, it's, yeah, not having a lot of like access in terms of like homemade Chinese food is, is so special to be able to eat with you and, and your family and your friends. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are some of the moments I remember, at least for me, in my mind, like just of us eating and talking and, you know, and, and even particularly, I would say this summer in particular sitting outside on your deck uh, on your porch and eating together um, laughing or crying and yeah for me those were like those how I feel like I feel connected to you through through those intimate moments of sharing a meal together and also making coffee for you because I worked at this cafe (laughs) um, in this this past year before COVID and you worked just around the corner so you came in every day and I really love making coffee for you and you know, I actually think around this podcast, um, the ideas of like creating a platform um, to share our mm. ideas, our voices, our stories, and particularly looking at the intersections around race, place, and faith actually, I think came from all these, like, you know, whether you came in coffee, like, I feel like a couple times a week, you know, we had these little moments where I'm making you Americano and we had all these <laughs> ideas. I think that for me is at least in my memory, how it kind of, kind of grew this idea and, and, and then you, and I think that's when you first mentioned Maria, when we were talking about this podcast. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we were talking about, so we were working together, right? In the Danton East side in yeah. different places. Like you worked at a social enterprise cafe and I was at a women's center. So there were some like, definitely a lot of things that, I think a lot of sharing of wisdom and sharing of experience, even just through those small interactions, right? Like you would mm-hmm. ask me 
questions about like the neighborhood since I've been working there longer and mm-hmm. then we would talk about the people that we knew and like how to be in relationship and in friendship with these people in the community and and also like your experiences especially this summer around um yeah racism that you experienced personally but also like systemic racism and learning around that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we had talked about like for a while we were thinking about like an event like some kind of panel right like oh yeah to share voices and really that event became this podcast yes like, <laughs> um, because we realized like we don't actually just want to do a one-time thing where people like show up and listen mm-hmm. to folks talk and then like leave like we want it to be an ongoing conversation and a place too that an event is can be a really special space but it's temporary mm-hmm. um so I think eventually we realized like that we wanted something that could create some form some kind of community for people right like a mm-hmm. listener community and a place where people could go even if that place is kind of like not a physical place yet right mm-hmm. um, definitely yeah and which totally tied into what Maria and I had talked about which uh, on that porch conversation I remember we were talking about potential names for this podcast and <laughs> the first one which was already taken so we couldn't use it but the first one we we uh, brought up was soapbox yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we would like to like rant about things like in a productive (laughs) a productive and and like generative way I would say not like a yeah I mean sometimes it's just like ranting (laughs) yeah I mean like the very first podcast talks that we had were right after you and I had talked at a streams of justice event at our church yes about about LGBTQ inclusion inclusion. and yeah uh like justice for queer people and what what does that look like so we had a lot of stuff to say yeah still <laughs> still do <laughs> but yeah so I think it's kind of cool how our our friendships have overlapped and intersected and have yeah. commonalities and mm-hmm. how they came together in the making of this podcast yeah, yeah and they've they've birthed things but also been birthed by the same things like even just Trixie you like my relationship with you mm-hmm. is solely well maybe not solely but mostly in part of the podcast right like we wouldn't know each other nearly as well if we hadn't been working on this project together yeah totally and I was gonna say on that like I feel like when I think about you Maria and our friendship particularly developed um grew blossom in the last couple months Mm -hmm. a lot of it is um I mean we did a few in-person recording but really it's like I feel like some of the meaningful conversations me just standing outside your your door social distancing and picking feet away yeah (laughs) picking up stuff from you picking Mm -hmm. up um, beautiful art and cards from you and just like having these really real honest conversation and I think as I'm exploring and learning you know what does it mean for me to be Taiwanese Canadian I think something that that you brought that is for me so real is you know you embody like you're a Taiwanese Dutch person and I always feel in some sense of because of the circle that I'm in the community I am um, which has a lot of Dutch people and that's kind of how I grew up I always felt Dutch um, but even though I'm not biologically obviously Dutch but I always felt that way because of the community I'm part of and so f- to meet you who's both like I think Taiwanese and embody that but also you're Dutch I'm like whoa this is like incredible <laughs> just like just to, to kind of hear from your perspective what it means to be particularly also biracial and kind of holding the tension of yeah like eastern and western and two different culture because i feel it a lot um i'm and i'm just trying to be be in it and be more fully show up as that be taiwanese but still like understand that i do hold a lot of i would say the dutch culture mm-hmm. 
and the Dutch identity because of the, the you know, the spaces I grew up and was educated and go to church too. So I, I just really grateful for you in terms of how open you are and you're like, ask me any questions. And I've learned so much <laughs> from you just um, in those conversations, particularly the last few weeks and months. So. Thanks, Trixie. <laughs> Yay. This whole episode is just us fangirling over one Yes. Yeah. Um, but it does tie in, I think, to a book that um, we were turned on to by a friend of the podcast, Megan Mast, Mia Birdsong's book, How We Show Up, um, which both Trixie and I are in the process of reading or listening yes. to via audiobook, and Maria will read at some point. I will but start it, it later today. <laughs> <laughs> but it, um, in, in it, she talks about a lot of really grounded and generous and expansive ways of being in relationship with one another um, that go against kind of the expectation of a relationship hierarchy being like your spouse or partner romantic partner fulfills is meant to fulfill all your needs for intimacy relational intimacy intimacy needs when we know that's not possible or healthy Mm -hmm. and so she talks a lot about what are ways that we can relate to one another in a more equitable and just and expansive and generous way Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I remember taking away from what I've listened to so far is each friendship and each relationship is its own thing it's its own relationship and so each friendship is unique and each relationship is unique so in thinking about it like that like it seems simple but she talks about how then each friendship and relationship would have its own kind of commitments and expectations and communication and what people bring to one another and I think she, she, she speaks against the idea that friendship is always easy. Like sometimes there is kind of a natural fit with someone or like kind of the idea of a kindred spirit, which I like where there's connection, but also friendships like romantic relationships like require work and communication and kind of like working out the messiness of being together and being people who bring their own baggage and expectations and traumas right to the relationship so yeah I love that we're opening this episode with talking about our own friendships and how they came to be and how those stories are so different right for each of us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I'm I was gonna say I like as like you listening I'm probably halfway through the book right now and it's 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 so powerful um, because of the stories that she tells and end up in and the friendship that she encounters I think, Celine, you touch on so many things that the book um, has said um, and that really have left me with a lot of convictions. Um, And I think one of the things, one of the many things is around committed friendships. And I think this time, especially during COVID, it showed me just the importance of friendship more than ever. um, And also like how interconnected we are. And that part of commitment is that part of knowing myself is also like through the reflection of others. And I think as I continue to learn and grow around into my own cultural identity and the intersecting identities that I do hold, I think something that I feel committed to the friends who have been there, who are showing up for me, Um, maybe not physically at this time, but really, you know, I think about how we show up, which is what the book, um, Mia's book really talk about showing up is that commitment to, to be, to listen, to, to share, to lament, to celebrate. And, and I think a lot of that power and that commitment of friendship is what I experienced this summer um, when I'm able to be 
learning more um, what liberation looked like. And I think part of that is that liberating friendships um, I've been able to build through this time and people who have allowed me to be more, encouraged me to be more fully, um, fully who I am, like being very honest and vulnerable and also for me to create space to be more fully who they are. And, th- and that's a big commitment to really show up um, mm-hmm. for each other. And so there's so many people I feel like I think about who, you know, in some way you have to think about who are showing up and who are not. And I think about one particular, I just talked to her this morning, my friend, Sonia, who's a good friend of ours. And also she made the music with her husband, Paul, for this podcast and just how, even though physically we're apart, she's in Portland, I'm in Vancouver. We're five hours apart, actually, we figured it out across, across the border. We I feel like have really showed up for each other um, and committed and I can call her and she can call me. And that has been, you know, one of the greatest thing that she's able to reflect back to me of who I am. And especially the times when this summer, when I experienced um, the racist incident, when a white man spat on me and that really created a lot of anger and rage and to be able to process that she was able to be there for me and to really care for me in that way to show up and support on the phone and on video chats um, mm-hmm. and through messages. Mm-hmm. And so um, and just like both of you too, like physically, both of you were able to show up um, and we're able to talk, talk through it and process it. But that's a commitment. So really thinking around like, what does commitment look like around like expectations, around boundaries, around showing up. And yeah, for me that, you know, show me that that is so important. And that's kind of part of what for me to create those intimacy around friendships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you talked earlier when we were discussing this, this episode, Trixie, about how like conversely to you, there have been like whether it was the racist incident and how, you know, your friends responded to that when you would bring it up or like the pandemic in general, I think Mm -hmm. has been really um, a revealing and a clarifying around friendship and relationships. So I think for a lot of us, like it's, the conditions of the pandemic being kind of like crucible conditions or conditions that are apocalyptic in ways. And by mm-hmm. that, I mean, like, you know, the sense of the word being a revealing, right? Like a pulling back of some kind of truth mm-hmm. about our lives. I resonate with, um, if not the same circumstances or context, the experience of like having friendships and relationships be brought to light, sometimes painfully in terms of like what they actually are mm-hmm. and what they're not over the duration of COVID has been really hard in ways, but also really fulfilling and and good in ways for me. I don't know if you two want to talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I noticed kind of closer to the beginning of COVID, and I guess even now, is just um, kind of the clarification of the friend hierarchy that I have in my being that I didn't necessarily realize was there. So like when the world shut down, you're basically shut in your house with whoever you live with, if you live with other people. So for me, I have a roommate and we're super open about the fact that we're really, really good roommates and we're not friends, which is kind of funny to say, but it's true. Like our friend circles are completely separate. We wouldn't naturally hang out with each other, mm-hmm. but we really love living together and we, we do it really well. So in that way, I was really lucky at the beginning of the pandemic. And also there was this layer of like, who do I actually want to go to to get the support that I need to make it through this hard time? And when Vancouver started to open up a little bit and we were allowed to form bubbles with other households, 
that opened up really interesting conversations about like, yeah, who are the people that are the most important for you to see in person? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And for some people that was biological family. For me, it was not biological family, but our producer, Emma, she's my best friend. And so we bubbled and (laughs) (laughs) such, such odd language, but you know, we all know what it means. But yeah, it kind of, there, there was a tension that had to be held with like who is the most important. And then there's the added tension of like, if you feel like this one particular person is the most important friendship for you, but they don't feel the same way, that leaves open the possibility for wounding, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, just what you just said, the bubble thing, for sure, because I'm by myself, alone. Mm-hmm. Um, never have I been so alone before, but at the same time, I don't feel lonely because I do feel like I've, I've talked to uh, and connected with so many friends um, on the phone, but also, you know, in person in a limited way. And I think about who, I think friendship also makes me think about who am I physically around? Mm-hmm. This is so important, like more than ever, like, if I need something, you know, especially the first two weeks um, in March, I just came back from California when everything shut down. So I literally couldn't leave my apartment because I was isolating for 14 days. So I think about my neighbors. I live in this building that has, um, that I think part of the vision and the ethos is really how do we build this like mutually intentional transformative community where neighbors really do know each other and care for each other. And I think one of the things that this has revealed this time is like the sometimes like people who are physically around us and knowing your neighbors is so important to like practically care for you, like dropping off groceries or picking up things when you can't leave or someone is sick. You know, we all took turn to a meal train for someone in our building who had COVID. And so how do we support and physically be there for each other? So I feel like neighbors took on like a whole new meaning of like that deeper relationship of like kin, that family. And, and I think about Celine, like you are just down the street. I can just walk to your house and Maria too. Like how important those friendships were really like, even though I have a lot of good friends, you know, um, across Canada and the U S and England around the world. But I, I think about the people in my bubble who I can physically see, um, even if we have to be distant to like, having you know in-person conversation was so important for me and and the ability to even share some food or eat together were so important to me friends that I can physically walk to in my neighborhood those were like some of I would say my my in some way the the deepest friendship because I can just like we can meet for a walk outside or go to a park those were so important to connect and and even though you know it's hard to like not touch I think for me that was the hardest thing not being able to give a hug but at the same time, we we're actually able to be in the same physical space outside where was, was super important for me. Um, and, and revealing also um, for those people who I can't physically see, like the time and the commitment I would make to talking on the phone, to doing Zoom, endless Zoom and video chats, the kind of relationship that we, we can just be really open and honest in this time, be really vulnerable and share, you know, all the all the messiness um, kind of all we experience right now. Those were the people that I feel that I felt the closest to because I can be more fully who I am and they can be fully who they are. So, but part of that is also lamenting because some friendships you realize, you know, you're not able to talk about racism. You're not able to talk about oppression and what's happening right now and, and the trauma um, because maybe they're not in the same place or they haven't thought about it. 
And so those were some of the friendship that was also painful to know, like who to hold on to, who to let go and who are your people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just going back a little bit to where you, you use the language of hierarchy, but I think what you're actually talking about, um, <laughs> just because in terms of this episode, we're talking about moving away from hierarchy is like what actually Mia talks about, which again, I know you haven't read the book yet, but so much of what's in the book, I think you already know in a lot of ways. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but you're, I think, talking about what zones like so in, in the book. And I think actually, I don't know if it's in the book or if it's someone that she references, but the idea of zones of friendship and relationship. Mm -hmm. So you have kind of an inner, you have a, an inner circle and then the circles kind of go outward from that. And so rather than like language and like conceptions of hierarchy, which often mean a form of dominance or like mm -hmm. one is better than the other is kind of how we often think about hierarchy. Yeah. Um, a zone or kind of a circle, um, which is very prevalent culturally in like Asian cultures, as well as um, indigenous conceptions of relationship mm -hmm. too, is much more of a connected and holistic idea of relationship I think and yeah. it still entails like people who are closer to you right more like people gathered I guess around a fire rather than yeah. like mm -hmm. it's in more, a line <laughs> it's more proximal than than the other I feel like you just took a very like catholic way of thinking about it and you made it very baptist <laughs> <laughs> I mean I mean you know more about <laughs> being catholic than me you took a triangle and you made it lie down and you made it very flat yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. funny because yeah. I don't know if I identify as like, I, I don't really identify as being Baptist, even though technically I'm a member of a, a Baptist church. Mm -hmm. um. yeah. I mean, technically I'm also a member of a Baptist church. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly the idea of like, I know that from what I've read and like heard from people, the idea of like the around shared table, right, mm -hmm. is very mm -hmm. important in Baptist yeah. circles. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And I think part of the inner circle, what you're talking about, I think about like, we use the word like language, like significant other. And I feel like that is always, there's a connotation of like the romantic partner. But for mm -hmm. me, I feel like who are the significant people in my life are like these friends who are like family and a lot of them mm -hmm. are neighbors, right? Those are the significant people in my life who are, you know, mutually care and support and love. It's about the family we make, right? It's, it's I feel like, is just as important as the family that makes us, the people that we choose to be surrounded by, to care for in yeah. our circle. It makes me think of, so while we were planning this episode, I was racking my brain trying to think about like references of friendships in pop culture and media and literature that I liked. And I really, really struggled to think of them. But you saying that, Trixie, makes me think of <laughs> Grey's Anatomy actually <laughs> which is not a show that I would like put my name behind as a good show but I have watched a lot of it and the friendship between Meredith and Christina mm, like they yes. the, and the language that they use for each other they call each other like their person because they <laughs> you know they each are romantically involved with other people but like Christina is Meredith's person and vice versa <laughs> and I really love that language because there's a level of intimacy that I don't know. There's there's a level of intimacy that I feel like even goes beyond romantic intimacy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so often we are taught that intimacy is only in the domain or mm -hmm. certain types of intimacy are only within the domain of the romantic or the sexual when really yeah. intimacy is actually now that I'm talking about it, it, it kind of reminds me of like the whole idea of a scarcity mindset, right? The idea that like 
there's only a certain amount of intimacy that you can take uh, or give. And so then it must be only within the bounds of like a particular privileged as in prioritized mm-hmm. relationship, yeah. being the romantic or the sexual partner. But really intimacy is kind of like a language that we speak, right? It's like a way to be with other people and to be in relationship with others. Mm-hmm. And while it's not like you can do that, it's not like um, you can kind of like throw that everywhere because mm-hmm. no one has that capacity. There is an abundance of intimacy that we can give and receive mm-hmm. that often we are well not just afraid of but like we're, we're taught so much not to do that right like it goes against the grain of society and and often of like church culture to mm-hmm. to be more expansive with our intimacy and our affection as well mm-hmm. yeah I think about I mean I, I think a lot about family and and when you just talk about the the, the domains that the intimacy often, you know, culturally and within the church too, particularly it's a focus on like the relation, the, the marriage domain or the family, like the biological family domain, which I'm single right now and I'm not connected to my family, sadly. It's, you know, I came from a really broken immigrant family. And so for me, like I have, to, I had to really reorient how I thought about relationship and intimacy. Because for me, friendship is actually where I get the most sense of intimacy like the emotional relational even physical that kind of affection of touch that that for me is 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 so important and and yeah it's it's hard when i feel like it's not talked about as much especially within the church in terms of valued as much um and even society like it is hard to find how it's represented and sometimes it's not as much represented in like the media we watch right in terms of Mm -hmm. upholding kind of more of the romantic or even biological family so this is where I have to like remind myself like how we can reimagine how we choose family and and kind of the 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 chosen family for me is so important for like particularly around friendship and and that celebration and that acknowledgement of of intimacy which is we all need no matter we're married or we're not married, you know, no matter what's, whether we have biological family or not, like this is something we all need because that's what we're built for, to, to be interconnected, interdependent on each other. And COVID has really showed us that in the most practical ways, but I do think it really shows us like, how do we show up for me? Like for me, it's like, yeah, how do we show up for people? That is a huge part of like intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because ultimately, intimacy in whatever form you're thinking about it is just being truly known you know Mm -hmm. whether that is physically or emotionally or psychologically and in our society we are taught that no one should actually truly know you because our true selves are unacceptable in whatever form we're talking about so it can be really really scary when you grew up in a society that tells you constantly that you are not enough and that you are unacceptable and that something is wrong with you or that like um, you need to somehow fit into this box of normalcy. The idea of like being your true, weird, broken self in front of other people is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, at least in my case, my strongest friendship, think about my friendship with Emma, but my friendship with other people, they are strong because we know each other truthfully. And we've been through kind of like the hard and the nitty gritty and the messy seasons of our lives together and the thing that helps to carry the friendship through those seasons is actually the vulnerability and not hiding ourselves from each other I think part of that um, as I'm learning more about myself is is building trust and and I think 
you know, that is so intimate because sometimes, you know, trust can be easily broken also. And, and in a time where, you know, there's like so much trauma, racial trauma, oppression, and I feel like hurt people can also hurt people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so how do we, as we try to build that trust and vulnerability and honesty, how do we extend that, that, that space for, you know, grace, forgiveness, patience, and, and to fully work together around liberating ourselves and liberating others around us. And that it takes time to build those trusts and accountability. And so, yeah, I, I feel like that kind of accountability around like community care and self-care, they're interconnected very much. And that's, that's important to, to, to be able to work on that and, and to kind of hold a space for that tension. I think it's so important when you talk about Trixie because it goes, unfortunately, like the idea of trust and vulnerability, you, even though we talk about these things often in church or Christian rhetoric, like the church, church culture, like mainstream church culture would kind of goes against that trust and vulnerability. And in fact, like doesn't, or has a, a huge problem and distrust mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. ways that intimacy and affection are shared, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I think part of that is fear of sexuality and kind of positioning it as dangerous, mm-hmm. um, which goes back a long way. And we probably won't like, we don't have the time or expertise to trace that whole <laughs> lineage, but like, oh, I think many people, especially people um, now who have grown up or experienced faith community have seen that in some form. <laughs> But that fear, which in the, la- the latest episode, I think, of Reclaiming My Theology, do you remember her name? The, interview- the interviewee, Trixie? It'll come to me, but you just keep going. Um, okay. We will try to put her in the show notes because <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> her name off the top of my head, but she's, I believe, a midwife um, who talks about how, or she a doula or a midwife, can't remember. She's a birth worker, um, and the conversation is really wonderful and informative and highly recommend listening to it but she talks about how fear is the opposite of love not Mm -hmm. hate right so when there's kind of this culture built of fear around particular things like sexuality and I would say probably more so like women's sexuality or like Mm -hmm. women or femmes or like queer or other you know sexuality Mm -hmm. just not male sexuality yeah then that fear shows itself in the ways that then the church um, or those in power in the church who are usually men, like try to control what they see as to be feared. Mm-hmm. And so I think the ways we see that is physical affection and relational intimacy are discouraged in almost every way and form, right? Except for the small, tiny exception of like a romantic spouse, a straight mm-hmm. spouse, <laughs> like in mm-hmm. a straight relationship. So it's such a narrowing of the way that we're meant to be in relationship and be connected and close and trusting of one another. Mm-hmm. And it's very disembodied as well, right? Because mm-hmm. physical affection and showing up for each other by expressing physical affection is such like a good and generous way, I think, to mm-hmm. like be together and to communicate care and love. And it's so discouraged. Um, you two could probably talk more about this because I know that when I was single like I didn't have a partner who also would be like visibly in the church and was in like a straight passing relationship when I was single it wasn't 
I remember experiencing this very strong sense, like this cultural sense of like what was okay, how -hmm. to touch people and like how that would be okay, which is like when you have a partner, you can like put your arm around them or whatever. And then what was like not encouraged, um, which is like everything else (laughs) (laughs) other than like say like the hugs, you know, the hugs and the handshakes type of thing. Yes, yes, But even, even, even thinking about hugs, like I, I mean, I can kind of chuckle about it now, but it still kind of infuriates me that the quote unquote Christian side hug is <laughs> so alive in churches. And I don't understand. I mean, I do understand it because I grew up in like purity culture and, you know, I, I do understand the thinking behind it and the fear behind it. But the fact that like me as a woman, it's taboo to hug a man like front to front and and how like lots of people find that ridiculous or uncomfortable or um inappropriate and oh just I have no words (laughs) yeah I I I feel you I mean just rewinding back her name is Erin Corey um that's um she's the doula and owner of the Ezra Birth Collective who did the podcast episode with Brandy Miller where you know talking what you just said about love and fear in our body and and embodiment and disembodiment and just the physical touch mm-hmm. I I totally feel that way too Maria like I love hugging that's definitely mm-hmm. my language my love language I guess and, and I say hugging as in like full-on body hug like and at least a good solid five second or more until <laughs> it gets yes. awkward like my friend knows <laughs> that like that's how I feel love and again because I'm disconnected from my own family like I said this is why the friendship is so important for that um, relational intimacy but I think also like within the church context it sometimes is really hard it's like that handshake or you can just you know if I hug a man it's like there is the awkwardness um, or that judging looks from other people or that assumption if you know if you're getting close to a guy be like oh is something going on <laughs> and so like yeah I, I feel like how can we how can we just make this more free like how can we be more freely express our love and care for each other and and to be not afraid of our body right Mm -hmm. to be really actually embodied that love that we often talk about at church but not displayed and not affirmed and not celebrated yeah I think Trixie maybe the maybe the first step or the first like lean forward of that question is like we have to free ourselves first of all so Mm -hmm. I mean Celine, you know this part about my history, but I, like, when I was a teenager, I went through a phase of, like, very strict, deeply conservative, like, Southern Baptist values. Long skirts, long hair, the works. I think maybe I've mentioned this in an episode before, but, like, going through the work of freeing myself, of being afraid of my own body, and, like, I mean, that took years. And even now, as a single person who is committed to singleness like I've had to be really intentional about making sure that I get the physical affection that I need to be a healthy person because physical touch is absolutely my number one love language so with select friends in church it like we have talked about and kind of put into practice this idea of like when we're sitting together in church it is acceptable to like cuddle and to put an arm around each other and to sit like that and to just kind of enjoy each other's company And like physical proximity, which is not something that as a single person, you have to kind of ask for it or look for it because it doesn't just Mm -hmm. happen organically. And I think the more that people do that, 
the more it will become normalized. But it's mm-hmm. it's difficult because it's not the norm right now. And so you do have to, it does take work. It takes emotional labor to to put the work into being comfortable with kind of crossing those boundaries and writing new boundaries. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm hearing you say also, so that's really important, is about just able to communicate, right? Communicate your needs, mm-hmm. right? Like your needs and your wants, and that hopefully you are in a friendship that, you know, that has that trust and openness uh, and vulnerable to actually express what you need and that person, your friend can, can understand and, and, and that mutually you can um, share and hold that space with each other. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes, yeah, it starts with freeing yourself and knowing what you need and what you want so you can communicate that and, and mm-hmm. set those healthy boundaries, but um, able to, yeah, share that kind of intimacy with someone that can be reciprocated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think as you do that, right, like, or as we do that, we're modeling for other people, like mm-hmm. you said, Maria, right? Like it, culture's only shifted or it's shifted through people doing that, kind of mm-hmm. like doing that intentional shifting of what's normal or considered normal. Mm-hmm. And also kind of like the people who have power in that place doing what they can to articulate and show a better way as well, which we don't really talk about at all <laughs> or see mm-hmm. in like churches or Christian spaces, unfortunately. But there is a lot of places outside of the center of power that are talking and model talking about and modeling this kind of more expansive, generous way of being intimate and affectionate and relational in our relationships, which I think ties into what one of the main the main things that Mia Birdsong talks about, which resonated with me when I was listening to her read the book. So one of the great things, bit of an aside, but one of the great things about the audiobook for how we show up is that it's actually Mia reading her own book. So it just feels so much more real and warmer than like someone who didn't write those words saying it. So it's really wonderful. I've been loving listening to it. One of her main things is those who are most marginalized and excluded from mainstream society and the way that our our culture and our systems prioritize particular kinds of being in relationship in a very rigid and hierarchical way. The people who are most marginalized by that and who are excluded from that being possible Mm-hmm. Queer people, houseless or poor people, like um, sex workers, like people who are on the margins of of many kinds of margins. But those are the places to look for wisdom and to look for ways of being radically different and how we take care of each other and how we show up for each other and how we relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, because those people in those communities have been already doing that work because they are trying to survive and create different ways of being outside of the power structures and societies and systems that we live in, Um, which totally makes sense to me because I think about like the ways that women in the downtown east side have schooled me on how to take care of each other and how to show up for one another Mm -hmm. and how to be real with people. Like, I mean, you talk to pretty much anyone who's worked in like um, an inner city environment or like an environment with a lot of folks who who are poor or who have been like gone through multiple kinds of systemic oppression and hardship and like come out the other side of that or st- and are still living that. And they will say like, there's no bullshit with people in, in those communities because mm-hmm. they've realized, I think like, there's no point, <laughs> like there's no point to showing up with a mask or like trying to put forth a different version mm-hmm. of yourself 
And in that way, they've kind of arrived at a place where so many folks who have not experienced um, mm -hmm. before or being systemically oppressed in all of those ways, in those layers of ways, they've come to a place where we, a lot of us who, are, who have not experienced that, have yet to get to, right? Where we mm -hmm. still struggle with like how to present ourselves as like our real selves and and all of the, our baggage and our struggles and our traumas. And, and I've learned so much about being real and of like mutuality and kind of like looking out for one another from these women that I've met through my, through uh, work in the downtown East side. Yeah. And then also from queer friends and like mm -hmm. queer people who have taught me about expansive friendship and expansive relationship and moving towards love rather than fear when a relationship changes um, or even in just like thinking about and practicing friendship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just remember um, just kind of jumping on what you just said, something I, I mean, so interesting taking away from the book, but she has this one section around the querying of friendship in the book. And that was so, so powerful in terms of how she explained that in, in terms of like the systemic oppression and constraints um, that we often find ourselves that friendship is kind of put under and that querying our friendship is really to create that generous um, generous space space of care and love for support that we can open up to each other and cross those boundaries and barriers that's often put between us and and you know what I'm learning and also working at downtown east side about how people really look out physically look out for each other and check in on each other and that family they're able to create Queer, queering of friendship, you know, that they're really breaking down all those barriers I think we often put, um, put up in um, and, and, and built. It's, it's really incredible for us to be able to kind of see what kind of community that they're creating in the inter intersectionality of different identities and culture. That makes me think in the, again, in the book, she also talked a lot about Black folks and, and part of that is, you know, as, as your many experience, um, the oppressive structure and being separated from the mainstream, they really talk about how you're raised by this village, right? This village ra raising like, you know, your, your grandparents, your aunties, your uncles, like, and I love that because I think about Asian culture too. I can, I can obviously own can speak really to that. There is this culture that you call like, like as part of respect and honor you call someone an auntie right and they're not actually biologically related to you but this is kind of what you do and and your cousins and your uncles and popo you know popo's grandma and, and especially because downtown east side is right um, by chinatown intersecting that I, I i see that and i would call yeah call the popos and 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 i feel like that's something i want to live more into as i continue try to reclaim my own um asian identity, Taiwanese cultural identity, to, to live in that, that modeling of that expensive family that you're talking about, that it, it really does take a village to be able to create um, healthy community with each other and for each other. Yeah, that's something I want to continue to do to, to reclaim that sense of family of aunties and uncles and cousins and grandparents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we should just distinguish just for listeners, maybe, that when we um, and they'll get this if they read the book or they've read queer theory, but to queer something being like a verb, the way we're talking about it right now is kind of to intentionally subvert the norm or the status mm -hmm. quo of something. So yes. we're not saying like you have to be queer in order to do this. Although a lot of usually <laughs> queer folks often model 
because they experience being queer, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is not norm considered the norm or status quo, are often like experts in queering things. But yeah, as as kind of like a verb, it, it's uh, an action and an intention and a kind of orientation that like anyone can kind of think about in terms of queering um, mm-hmm. a very narrow, a narrow and rigid norm that is enforced. So to move beyond that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love Trixie that when you were talking about that, like with that in mind, like the idea of to queer friendships or to queer mm-hmm. any kind of relationship is also to reclaim like cultural pieces and to kind of mm-hmm. decolonize. And those things are all kind of actions that can occur being tied together and overlapping, right? Mm-hmm. As we unlearn these very narrow conceptions of what is appropriate or like normal, I use that with quotes, relationships and friendships. And we're unlearning those from, you know, capitalist and white supremacist society. Mm-hmm. We are also getting more in touch with actually ways of being and ways of being in relationship that are much older, that are more aligned with um, our own culture and and the ways of seeing relationship and community that are older than people being like than settlers being on this land, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everyone has some ancestral story, like everyone has some ancestral story of being in a connected relational community, kind of the village of what you talk about, Trixie. Some far some way back in their, yeah. yes. in their history, <laughs> right? Like it's not like white people don't have that part of whiteness. What whiteness does is try to erase those connections to your to your the stories of your your ancestors and your family that came before came before kind of the giant eraser of whiteness like (laughs) right so like yes so everyone I think can kind of like think about what not to like go back to that necessarily um because that's not possible what are but what are ways that we can reclaim and learn those things into Mm -hmm. our context now like what are the ways that we can create that kind of community and village way of being with other people in cities and in neighborhoods right and in places where you live with housemates and you know the context of our lives now yeah and I think this is something that both of you have touched on um Trixie particularly you were talking about the popos in Chinatown yes and yeah that idea of intergenerational friendship I think so lost in our society we live in a really ageist among other ist (laughs) but like a really ageist society where elders are not looked at with reverence or respect, they're marginalized, they're pushed outside of the center of community life. And with that comes this idea that everyone should just kind of mingle with their own age group. And I think there's, there's beauty and value in having friends that are in the same life stage as you. I don't want to diminish that. But there's also so much beauty and value in as adults, being friends with children and being friends with elders who are at least one, maybe two generations older than you. And so much, so much cultural wisdom can be lost if we don't have those overlaps and those, those relationships and conversations. Yes, yes. And um, that makes me think of part of like building and nourishing those intergenerational um, friendship again with elders and with children is also that giving and receiving, which I think is so pinnacle again, back to building trusts is this circle of like, you have something to give and you have something to really receive. And particularly with elders, you know, we, you know, there's the many things that we can give and support, but they also recognizing that they have so much, like you said, wisdom, cultural wisdom um, and experience and live 
stories that they can share with us and teach us. And mm-hmm. so I think that's like holding space for that giving and receiving is kind of what will continue hopefully to nurture those friendships, those intergenerational friendship. And particularly kids, I feel like I, even though I give, you know, to them, they give me so much and reminds mm-hmm. me what does it mean to like use your imagination, be curious, be creative, um, say what you think, <laughs> you know, and be literally be embodied, like lived in your body. And I feel like, yeah, I've, I've learned so much from that too. So continue to practice and model of the giving and receiving, I think will nurture these intergenerational friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something I learned again from um, women and elders in the downtown east side, the indigenous woman that I got to know through working in the community. One of the practices, there are a bunch of practices that have to do with honoring elders. And one of them was serving elders first at any kind of meal or feast. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a way to, yeah, honor the, the life lived and the wisdom and the just how much they have, how much, how important they are to a community and to a group of people. Mm-hmm. And another one too is to have an elder say a prayer before any kind of event where people are gathered together. And again, just to open, to open kind of the space was to have an elder kind of speak first. I once went to a panel where the panel was talking about police brutality in various communities. And it was really interesting because it connected Black and Indigenous struggle with you know, prisons and police and kind of state violence. But one of the things that I remember most from it, I mean, there were a lot of really informative parts of the panel, but I remember very clearly what happened at the beginning, which was one of the speakers who had traveled from the States, a Black speaker, asked before giving her talk, like on the panel, she asked if an elder in the room would give her permission to speak. So she asked Mm. that and then one of someone who considered himself an elder was at first confused and then like once he got it he was like yes and then she continued um, and so but this beautiful practice I think of mm-hmm. not just honoring the elders of a community or where you are the ones that you know but also just when you enter a space where you enter a new kind of gathering or group of people mm-hmm. to honor the practice of honoring elders like bringing that with you mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is something yeah again like all these practices are so countercultural to like mainstream society which is obviously so marked by all the isms that we mm-hmm. we often talk about but have those things that are um, in this context kind of like the colonial idea of like the devaluation of elders I should say is seen as normal like it's become like what we think of as normal um, which is something to push back on and resist mm-hmm. yeah and I think um, just on that too like in terms of being presence and and part of for me is like also honoring is like receiving the posture of receiving which I think it's also very countercultural because I think we're taught to like give and take but um, receiving takes a lot of humility to be in that posture of particularly receiving blessings from elders and also asking for help and asking for what you need right and then receiving so I think that's part of hopefully you know the work around like decolonizing our relationship, particularly like in the community, this like circle of giving and receiving, it's, it needs to be reciprocal. Mm-hmm. So what we've been talking about a lot is kind of moving away from relationship hierarchy and hierarchy being things on top dominating other things or kind of like a linear progression of priorities. And instead of, instead of that, moving towards something much more expansive and generous, 
um, and how that's actually a freeing thing. One of the things that um, we also talked about with physical affection was how we can ourselves kind of unlearn the narrowness and the constraints that society kind of imposes on us on what that looks like in communication with others and the friendships that we have. And then we can model that for others and kind of like start creating the world that we want to see in that way um, mm -hmm. in terms of how we relate to one another with uh, generosity and intimacy. We talked a little bit before this recording about how there are ceremonies, like public ceremonies that celebrate romantic relationships, right? Like weddings mm -hmm. are probably the biggest ones, the biggest form of like public ceremony and celebration that we have now, <laughs> like, and maybe having babies, like again, very, uh, <laughs> yeah, baptism. yeah, in churches, baptism, or even like baby showers or whatever, or gender reveal parties, which we won't yeah. talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but they're terrible, they should not. <laughs> we could, we could have a whole episode talking about we why should. gender reveal parties are Messed like, just up. should, yeah, how they should. <laughs> Anyways, okay, <laughs> bit of an aside, but it's related because <laughs> everything's connected. But we have these, we have these ceremonies, right, and these ways of marking and articulating and kind of elevating relationships, but it's always romantic relationships or it has to mm -hmm. do with like the nuclear or straight or biological family. So in our previous conversations, we kind of talked about what are ways that we then can honor and celebrate friendship because there's no equivalent right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I talked mm -hmm. about how I actually knew of a friend who had a friend wedding with, with another friend. Um, it was two men and they they had some kind of ceremony with friends present and they made public commitments to one another, which I love. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and I mean, I love that that happened. And I also am like, why, why do I only know of this happening once? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this should be more of a thing. But there are other ways too, I think, of, that, are, that don't necessarily look like a wedding ceremony or that, are, that, are, that can be different or more like everyday or mundane looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think when we talk about um, honoring and celebrating, and and I think, yeah, for me, it is hard because I do think like, if I'm not married or I have a kid and a baptism, like it's how, is that public acknowledgement, right? That is sometimes so beautiful. Um, and it feels so much like there's accountability in that too. So how do you practice that with, with friendship? And I'm trying to think about like even small ways and even during this COVID time, I feel like a number of like circles of friends I feel committed to um, and even this podcast, right? Like we come together and we spend a lot of time talking even before we record this podcast. And, <laughs> and there's that commitment, commitment of showing up, of listening, of caring. And obviously I feel like this is talking about commitment. We're doing this live and public. So it's in some way a very public commitment of our friendships, right? And, and, our hope for collective liberation, you know? And so that's, I mean, one way I can think of, I'm just thinking out loud right now in terms of a public commitment of like doing something together and honoring each other, um, but making it public so other people can hear and listen and, and we can be accountable for our actions. Um, and then obviously many other small ways around like different groups that we have formed during this time and ways that, yeah, we can acknowledge. I think part of that is a huge piece of like, you know, the making vows is that really acknowledgement, right, <laughs> to each other and of being there and showing up. I would love to see more of that in terms of not being just like, ooh, a one-off thing, like what you said um, with your 
two friends, Celine. That's like mm-hmm. amazing, but that is so rare. Um, mm-hmm. So how can we, yeah, how can we turn that into something that we can celebrate and not just like a one-time thing? Yeah, I think the the main challenge that I see in this conversation is the fact that the way that friendships are regarded in society are so vastly different from marriages and and nuclear slash biological family, just in in terms of longevity. So when you get married, even though divorce is an option, like marriage vows generally are understood to be lifelong vows. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in our society, it's understood that friends and friendship is not necessarily lifelong. Or when you go into a friendship, there's no pressure to like be in it for the rest of your life in the same way mm-hmm. as a marriage mm-hmm. has, right? And so that's really challenging. How do we shift that? How do we make it so that we can be deeply committed mm-hmm. to our friends, but also maybe like subverting that pressure that marriages have? I don't know. But one way that I can think of in the church is the existence of like monastic vows or other ways of committing to singleness. Even though the vows are between the person and God, the liturgical ceremony that surrounds vows in monastic communities is very community oriented. So the community that you are entering has to commit to being steadfast by you and you have to commit to being steadfast by them, which is really, really beautiful. And I think the, like monastic relationships have their own level of intimacy that is different than secular friendship, I think. But I think that there is a wisdom in that steadfastness. Wow, that's beautiful. Just to like reimagine, I think as you're talking, I'm trying to think, picture it in my mind. What does that look like? So, Well, I think one way that you, Maria, kind of modeled and like birthed um, a way of doing things differently in terms of celebrating and honoring singleness and singleness as in like singleness is also community, right? It's not just like Mm -hmm. you are solitary orbiting on your own, right? But you really modeled that by having your own ceremony and reception for when you took Mm -hmm. your vows of singleness which in the tradition actually maybe you should talk about this because I don't know (laughs) I don't know enough about (laughs) tell us why you did that and like maybe I would be interested to hear because I don't think I ever asked you about like the response that you got from people Mm, yeah (laughs) so that's a lot there there's there is a lot to unpack (laughs) in that conversation but basically um so I like discerned I discerned for a few years, um, just kind of feeling a call to celibacy, which like, I feel like in the secular world is a really, really big, scary word. And so part of my discernment was actually kind of like rehashing what celibacy meant and what singleness means when you're out in the world and like how to be single healthily in the world um, and sustainably, because we're not taught to do that. We're taught to kind of like be single as long as it gets you to a marriage and then be married and then be happy in that marriage. So yeah, my, my journey, it was a lot of just kind of like learning and figuring out if like how to be single healthily. And part of that was a huge part of it was kind of figuring out like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to have a community around me that will support me and kind of be my safety net in, in the way that nuclear family and significant others usually are. And so when I kind of got to the point of being ready to jump off the cliff, I, we started to plan this ceremony and we decided 
we being like me and my close friends and my pastor, we decided that it was really important to treat it like a wedding because I'm not going to be getting married. And so I wanted to really celebrate Mm -hmm. this commitment, this lifelong commitment that I was going to make. And so we did it. We treated it like a wedding. There were about 40 people. It was a really beautiful, like very quiet ceremony, which is exactly what I wanted. And then we had a reception where we just kind of like ate food and chatted and played board games. And it was so much more holy and significant than I was expecting it to be. Yeah. And in terms of how people reacted, I think I only received... To this day, I've only received like two really, truly negative reactions to talking about my vows. But generally, like if I'm out in the world and it somehow comes up in conversation, it's approached with a lot of curiosity and surprise. And most people just don't really know what to do with the information. <laughs> they just like, don't know how to react. And then in terms of people who were there, yeah, a lot of people were really moved in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I think they just saw it as like, kind of a radical witness to the love of God in a way that usually in the Christian, in the Christian tradition, marriage is kind of like the ultimate picture of Christ's love for the church. And I was able to offer kind of an alternative picture of what Christ's love for the church could look like um, outside of romantic partnership. And it was really beautiful. And there was bubble tea at the reception. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Thank you for modeling a whole different way of being that's so true to yourself. That really encapsulates Maria. Yeah. (laughs) That's incredible. You're actually an anarchist. You just don't know it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually, as I was articulating some of those things, I was like, oh yeah, like that is when I started to become radical. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yes. Yes. I mean, one of the big, one of the tenets or phrases of anarchism which I identify strongly with is the idea of building the the new world and the rubble of the old. So like mm-hmm. as kind of like, it's not just about envisioning um, a better future or kind of like thinking about ways to get there. It's emulating that future, envisioning and emulating and building and growing mm-hmm. that future as you live. Um, yes. So I totally see that as this anarchist act. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Trixie, you, you had mentioned this idea of relationship anarchy, um, which I haven't read the essay yet. So maybe you want to talk about it? Sure. I mean, I heard it from the book and then I Googled it right away because she talked about it. Um, And the title is called The Short Instructional Manifesto for Relationship Anarchy. And again, I'm still learning, but I thought this was really powerful um, from the book. So I can read it. It's it's quite short and we will put it as part of a resource um, so you can access it um, after the podcast hearing by supporting us on Patreon. This is, um, I'll, so I'll read, I'll read it and then we can think about it or reflect it and think about what this means. So in this um, manifesto, Andy wrote, love is abundant and every relationship is unique. Love and respect instead of entitlement. Find your core set of relationship values. Heterosexualism is rampant and out there, but don't let fear lead you. Built for the lovely unexpected. Fake it till you make it. Trust is better. Change through communication. And lastly, customize your commitments. So there's a lot, I mean, we don't have to go because that will take us for a long time, Um, but those are all the kind of bits and it goes into um, each paragraph, breaking that down of what each meant. 
I mean, we won't go into it. I encourage you to read it. But one of the things that really struck me um, is just, again, I think go back to what we even talked about, how love is abundant, right? I feel like we live in this society where everything is so like competitive and scarcity. Um, and to think that love is abundant and that every relationship is unique and we have the capacity to love more than one person in one relationship outside of you know, family, romantic partner. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, we're really talking about friendship um, and the uniqueness of each of our friendship. It's interdependence between each other. It's, it's so beautiful actually to continue to like hold on to that. And I think particularly in my faith too, like how we, how we think about friendship and how we um, going back to honoring and celebrating is that lifelong commitment, just like we would make as you know, people of faith. And you know, if you, if you are married, um, that's what I think for me, I, I long to have for like my deep friendship to have those like lifelong commitment with some sort of manifesto <laughs> in, our, in our friendship that could that commit commitment to, to encourage and yeah, support each other to be our full self and to share the abundance with others. There's this quote um, in that, I mean, we keep quoting that book, so many good things, but I, there's this line um, that we talked about. Someone said, I love you till ashes or dirt. And I love that. And, and I think that is a deep sign of commitment also um, in, in friendships. And I want to maybe actually start practicing that and <laughs> um, to, to say that to friends and, and, you know, normalize it in terms of like, this is, I will love you no matter we fight or, you know things happen, um, things get messy, shit is messy, but I am going to love you till ashes or dirt. Mm -hmm. And it really um, speaks to, I mean, I I think I've said the word steadfast a lot in this episode, or at least a few times, but I really like it because it speaks to the fact that you don't actually have to like the person all the time, Mm -hmm. right? Like in the same way that in a marriage, you can love a person and go through like quite long seasons of really, really struggling to like them. And I feel like we need to be able to apply that same reality to friendships and not shy away from the fact that friendships will also go through storms and periods of time where it's really, really hard, but it doesn't mean that you have to drop it and move on to, to another one. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so good. And that love takes so many forms too. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I think is where the title, what is gestured at with the title, because often we, rather than a hierarchy that privileges romantic love at the expense of other kinds of love, relationship anarchy would then say like, instead of a hierarchy, instead of power over, it's kind of an invitation to experience and practice like love of many kinds and doing that in communication with others that's kind of developed over time, like through mistakes and through Mm -hmm trying it to do it better as a practice, which is, I think, maybe what they, the author, um, is talking about when they say, fake it till you make it. Like the idea is, actually, I think it actually comes from an AA mantra, right? It's like the idea that if you practice something, it helps align you with that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like um, a disingenuous kind of action. It's just like a practice as in like a, dis- a discipline. Yep. Yeah, so I really, I love that as well. And I love anarchism or anything with anarchy in the title I mean really it's such a beautiful and expansive way of thinking about building a new world with our own practices and relationships Mm -hmm. as the old one crumbles around us (laughs) (laughs) mic drop I feel like that moment (laughs) so true so we thought we'd end with 
this poem by the artist Laura Mattis. This is part of a series called Platonic Intimacy, and we will link to the artist's website in the description. So it's just a long, the piece of art is just text over a solid color. And it's, it's worded similarly to the manifesto in that it's a way, it kind of instructs a way to be. So here we go, here's the piece. Kiss your friends' faces more. Side note, don't do it during COVID, but <laughs> later on. <laughs> this was written a while ago. <laughs> Destroy the belief that intimacy must be reserved for monogamous relationships. Be more loving. Embrace platonic intimacy. Embrace vulnerability. Use emotionality as a radical tactic against a society which teaches you that emotions are a sign of weakness. Tell more people you care about them. Hold their hands. Tell others you are proud of them. Offer support readily. Take care of the people around you. Mm. Wow, yes. yes. All of those things. Yes, yes, yes. I need to memorize those words mm -hmm. and practice it and live it out and model it for each other in the community that we want to be in. Resetting the Table is produced by Emma Renarts, and the intro music is by Sonia and Paul Gibbs. If you like what this podcast is about, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash resetting the table. We think it's really important to amplify voices of color, and we hope you do too. Even a little bit will help us sustain and grow the podcast. For now, 多谢, 谢谢. Thanks, and see you soon.